Hi, I'm Chris Richardson, and this is not a pipe podcast. Today, I'm thrilled to be speaking with Nick Susanis, who has written Unflattening, the first and only PhD dissertation illustrated in comics form, and now also a book with Harvard University Press. If you want to see the books and comics that Nick recommends, along with any of the other guests that we've had, don't forget to check out tinapp.org for all of their thoughts. Nick, thank you so much for joining me today. I remember how thrilled I was and my friends were when we heard about this, because it's some sense an obvious project, like I can't believe it hadn't been done yet, but it was also so new and sort of exhilarating to see this work being done. First of all, am I right that this is the first and only comics dissertation and now book? First, this is a little hard to, to be sure about. There, there is a, I've discovered since people send links to me all the time about this French one that happened in the 70s in psychology. Hmm. I've seen it and you can Google it and find it or I can send it to you. Not to go into it more, it's, it's kind of whimsical and I don't really understand what it is. It's quite short too. So as far as I know, at least in North America, this is probably the first. My coming to it is probably more sort of naivety and um, not knowing what I was doing. When I came back into, decided to go back to get a doctorate, I was a comics maker as a kid. Uh, that kind of took a lull in my life for a while because I was, you know, you go to university and you're supposed to do intellectual kinds of things and comics didn't count as that. Mm-hmm. I ran an arts magazine in Detroit for quite a while, and in the midst of that, I got asked to, to be in an art show, and I did some political comics for it, and it's like, that really started to turn the corner for me, and then I did a, a comic, we did an exhibition on games and art, and I did the, uh, the essay for it uh, on games, sort of philosophy, history, how games work, and so I really saw that the sort of, all these different projects I was doing were educational, and I saw the potential in this in the kind of comics I was making to make something that could bridge a public and an academic audience, but, um, but without dumbing it down. And it could really use all the, all the things that I love to do. I mean, I love to make comics, but now I actually could see making comics in this other context. I sort of stumbled into doctoral school. I decided I'd get my doctorate and I showed up there and I was like, this is the kind of work I want to do. And it didn't occur to me that it was a big deal. I just thought, well, why not? You know, Mouse had been out, Understanding Comics had been out, Persepolis, uh, Fun Home, I think, was had been out or was just about to be. I mean, there had been all these comics that had been widely accepted in all kinds of literary and academic audiences. I kind of thought the argument was over, and so I just dove into it, and I discovered it wasn't quite over. Not that I faced a lot of resistance, but I certainly, the kind of positive response it generated when word leaked out about it was kind of surprising. So so like I set out to just do it because I wanted to do it. And then in the midst of working on it, I realized how much of a sort of political act doing this kind of work was and how much, you know, it had to sort of support other projects like it. So, yeah. Yeah. So you went into the program hoping to do a dissertation that was in comic book form. Is that what you mean? Yeah, that was my. I I was admitted with samples of these comics that I had done, the games comic and political comics. That's what I said I was going to do. So there was no. Mm -hmm. It wasn't like I'm in year three and I'm working on my dissertation proposal and I'm like, "Mm, comics would be fun. I I said this is what I'm going to do. And my very first semester, I made comics for um, three or I think three of my classes, I made comics for all my projects. And one of my classes, I did research on using comics in the context. So, you know, I just started doing it from the ground up. 
And what, what was your program, actually? What was it in? Yeah, so I'm in the School of Education, or I was in the School of Education. It's a, a doctorate in education in interdisciplinary studies. So it wasn't, it's about as ill-defined as anything else I've done. <laughs> you know, I, I studied mathematics as an undergrad, and I have a I have a math art interdisciplinary master's. I mean, there was no clear place for me to fit, but but interdisciplinary studies let me sort of mix together a couple different things. So I, I had an advisor in English education, uh, Ruth Vins, an English prof there. And so she was my primary advisor. So I did a lot of stuff with the English ed people just because I tracked with them. Um, but I was in art education and philosophy of education and any other things that I wanted to jump into. Cool. Yeah. So, I mean, that makes sense then. Did you have a thesis in in the sense of main argument you were trying to support and prove in your dissertation, or did that come about after you had been working on it? It's a good question. Um, It's a good question. I I mean, I think going into it, there was a lot of ideas I wanted to explore. Uh, Like I said before, I think I started knowing I was going to do comics thinking because I thought it wasn't a big deal that I I would work on something in education. It didn't really matter what it was to me. But I think as I started gathering materials and started thinking about it, I realized how much the argument had to be for itself. So from like the time I entered school to the time that the dissertation started to take shape, it definitely became a much more self-referential piece than I had had any intention of doing two years earlier. So, you know, I mean, I would say it's very much an argument for the existence of things like it, definitely an argument for comics, but but really much more broadly, it's an argument for visual thinking in educational contexts, sort of disguised as a whole bunch about mythology and philosophy and all these other things, but that's in there. Yeah, and I mean, the book that we're talking about that it became is just simply titled Unflattening, yeah. which I found found interesting that there's no uh, second part of that where, you know, oftentimes in a dissertation or in a academic paper, you'll have a, a title, but then a subtitle that will, you know, tell you exactly what you're getting. Yeah. And I think, uh, well, I think, I guess it, going from what you've written in the book, you could take the visuals as maybe a second part of the title. Sure. But if you were to put it in words, what is unflattening? <laughs> well, that's a hard question. Um, I'm trying to leave, you know, I speak all in metaphor in the book, so I try not to tell people what it is. I'll say this, the dissertation does have a subtitle. We dropped it for the book version. They're nearly identical, except for some some minor things that got tweaked along the way. But yeah, it did have a, a proper proper academic subtitle, which I don't think I can remember. Um, <laughs> it shows but, you how important the subtitle uh, was. Well, it was clever. It was it was referencing Flatland and a couple other things. Um, I don't know. But it but it, it, it was a visual verbal like inquiry into something in, <laughs> uh, in many dimensions or something. But, you know, but but on flattening, you know, it's it's funny. It's people who read the book assume that it came from flat land, which I referenced very early in the book, uh, Edwin Abbott's 1880s novella about the geometric inhabitants of their two-dimensional world. Mm -hmm. And the truth is, the word came to me very early in my program. This first semester, I was thinking about how comics could present information in a way that was the way that you could layer things literally on top of each other, sort of panel on top of panel, image on top of image, image next to text, image next to image, text, you know, all that kind of layering 
somehow I could put more density into a single sheet of paper than I could ever do with written word. And so I started thinking about that as, as making this paper rather unflat, you know, as making it somehow like have all this depth to it. So I started playing with that word very early on. You know, I'm in interdisciplinary studies. That's That's been a pretty persistent theme in all my work. So this idea, one of the chapters is the importance of, of seeing double and then some. This idea of coming from multiple perspectives, which is sort of how I defined unflattening at some point. So that sort of merged. So this idea I had about comics became, also became a way to talk about coming from multiple perspectives, which could be interdisciplinarity, but it could also be visual, verbal, text, image. So it ended up standing in for a lot of different things. And then because this larger argument that sort of is the outer shell of this thing is about education trying to trying to think about how education could be more expansive more inclusive of the different ways we learn so it started the word starts to mean a lot of those different things and i know undergraduate courses that teach it i've heard some of them uh, professors say you know that's their first question they ask the students like what does he mean by this word and yeah, I, I like to leave it a little bit mysterious because mm-hmm. I don't know what I mean. <laughs> well, yeah, and I mean, that's one of the really interesting things I think about this work in general is the way that it, it layers meaning to the point where it, well, I mean, it's a, it's a polysemic text, right? Like you can, you can take multiple meanings from the combination of words and images. And so I don't think even the author necessarily needs to know or have in mind an exact meaning that you know, when it comes down to it, this is exactly what I mean, because it kind of takes away from the whole point of it. Right. That said, how much of this would you say, or in your thinking about it, is literal in the sense of looking and seeing perspectives? And how much would you say is, is metaphorical in the sense of, you know, coming up with different ideas and getting together with different people? Because, uh, I mean, obviously, it goes back and forth. But could you say a little bit about how you were conceiving of metaphor when working on it? Yeah, I'm still thinking about polysemic. I, I mean, um, <laughs> I may take me a while to get to that question. And you may have to re- reprompt me. Sure. So I'll just say a little bit about the process of how I came to the to work the particular way I work. When I was doing the political comics before I came back to school, it's like very easy to make comics that are sort of rah-rah about your team. You know, that's that's an easy thing to do. I was much more intrigued in how can I make something that, you know, somebody that doesn't agree with you will still read. And so I, I started, my solution to that was to sort of strip out, you know, words that you get along with somebody until you identify a party or a something. And all of a sudden you're like, well, I don't talk to you because of this or whatever. Mm -hmm. So I started stripping those out. And then as I started to shift to academic kind of comics, I felt it's the same thing. I felt like, you know, like I said, I wasn't trying to make simple versions of anything. I mean, if anything, my comics are, they're not, they're far from being simple, but I did start stripping out all the kind of discipline specific and, jargons, you know, jargon language that I think keeps people out. You know, I wanted to make something people read and I wanted it to be read by academics that would get it and appreciate it and and be able to have a serious conversation about it. But also by people on the street that, you know, you bump into or your cab driver or anybody who's not versed in that same, um, you know, hasn't had that same background or reading, but could still take a lot from it. And so for me, that goal with that was to strip all this language out and try to keep it as much in metaphor as I can, which then makes this, this is why I come back to this polysemic word that, you know, there's not that many words in it. I mean, it's, you know, maybe wordier than some comics, but it's trying to find a word that like means precisely the thing I mean, but also has 
like three other meanings. And so there's a lot of situations where I'm like using a scientific concept to talk about some other idea, maybe in education or something, like in the drawings and in the science or whatever it is. I don't want to take shortcuts. Like that's got to be as accurate and you have to learn as much about it as you do about the other thing I'm talking about. So so the person who's reading the text who's got this kind of background thinks that I'm talking to them. Mm-hmm. And the person coming from this other perspective thinks that I'm talking to them. And it's become, and it, it seems to be getting harder for me as I go. I'm trying to do this dance that I've made something that like makes a lot of sense to this audience. And they truly, truly think that's what I'm writing to because I've had this sort of very specific yet ambiguous word choice if that makes sense. Yeah. So, well, so would you say then that in a choice of a word or a phrase or whatever that makes sense, let's say, uh, to people who study pedagogy or to people who study uh, critical theory or something like that, you're choosing something that will sort of attract them and, and let them, you know, get that connection, but that is what you're trying to do or it's not necessarily what you're trying to do? I think that's right. I mean, I think it's like, signal to that kind of reader that this word speaks to them mm-hmm. and it's got a signal hopefully to a different kind of reader in a different way and I, I, hard to pick an example i mean i don't know i mean it's it's interesting i mean my work is very much about the images but it's also this very difficult choice of of which word to use and as i'm looking at translations of it now um which i can't read any of them but <laughs> i realize what a terrible task that is for somebody hmm. because it's you know, it, it's just very difficult. That didn't really get to your question. Yeah. No, no, it makes sense. That's what sparked your the first part of your question made me want to think about that. Well, I, I think to build on that a little bit, I I bookmarked or I earmarked this page uh, for anyone who has the book. It's on page 93. You talk about a creation you made when you were younger. I think his name is Lockerman. Yes, he is. Yeah, <laughs> which sounds like a really cool character. He's awesome. For some reason, people always laugh when they hear. That. So, I mean, it was a it was a it was a humor. It was a parody comic, but fair enough. Anyway, yes, Lockerman. <laughs> uh, I just I bookmarked this sort of page because it speaks to something that I've been more and more interested in lately uh, myself. So in the middle, you have I, to me again. Maybe I'm not getting or I'm getting something different than your original intention. But you have him in the center of a sort of bullseye that's. Uh, Pretty much the James Bond one that comes yep. at the beginning of uh, of a lot of the James Bond films that he'll shoot into it and, you know, the red will come down. Right. Let me see. Then you have a character falling, which to me is clearly Alice in, in Wonderland. Yep. And then you have Through the Looking Glass. And then you have a wardrobe, which again to me is The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, C.S. Lewis. Right. You seem to clearly have these as choices, but I was also thinking you make no direct reference, uh, at least sort of through the words, to Bond or to Alice or to uh, C.S. Lewis and that kind of thing. So I was wondering, like, if you've read The Chronicles of Narnia and you see this image of a wardrobe, I think it makes perfect sense to you, like, oh, that's what he's referring to. But if you haven't read C.S. Lewis, you don't, you're not familiar with that, for example, you, you get the meaning of the comic, of your comic, but you wouldn't necessarily get the allusion. Is that something you thought about in terms of um, making allusions to other work? Yeah, that's great. That's great observation and question. I mean, that's kind of how my work works. Like I like to weave all these different things together and I don't necessarily have much interest in explaining them. And I think it's, I mean, it's probably true of everything, but I think if you understand the reference, you read it in one way. And if you don't, I don't think it, I don't think it has any detriment to the reader because it's still doing the things in the narrative sense of, of the page. 
Mm-hmm. I don't know. To me, I, I really like that. Like it's rewarding in some ways for I me. Mean, and, and because it draws in so many different fields, there's going to be, you know, those references are going to be clear to a lot of people, but there's going to be some that aren't. Nobody's going to know who Lockerman is except for 50 people I went to high school with. I don't know. For me, I mean, I think that's uh, sort of the strength of comics is that that so much can go unsaid, unremarked upon, you know, that things are happening in the in the images that you can read on one level or you can read as they connect uh, the ways they connect to the text or you can read as just there's an interesting image and it makes me think about this. You know, I'm not sure how to answer that. Sorry. I really, really like what you're thinking about here. Well, would you say that it is going to be the same story or the same narrative in your work, whether or not the person gets these references? Like in that particular page, I counted, I think you also reference uh, to me, at least Alice, or not Alice in Wonderland, which you do, but um, uh, The Wizard of Oz with a, a tornado or a twister that, yep, that yep. takes you somewhere and stuff like that. So, Man, there's bluebirds flying over the rainbow in that too. It's <laughs> all in there. Yeah, I mean, there, there are so many things that if you are familiar with these sort of pop culture references, you'll get it. But then if you are not for some reason familiar with any of this pop culture stuff, you wouldn't get it. Would you say that that represents then potentially two different, at the very least two, probably more, more than two different narratives of your story or is it always going to be the same narrative just one is a little i don't know thicker or or more or deeper no i I think you're absolutely right i think it is multiple i think that's absolutely right i think different people read it as a different thing and i had this comes back to to what i just went on about a minute ago um i did a piece shortly before the it's one of the last comics i made before i was doing the dissertation and it was uh for my professor ruth vins is uh she did a book on narrative inquiry and she said you get the last chapter do it on the future of research as a comic do whatever you want <laughs> so i made this very short it's a four-page comic and, and actually one or two of the pages are reworked the the page about parallax it's a very similar page to that in this short comic it's a comic that's either about doing research and you might read it and say oh it's about research because coming from research sides of things or it's about the process of drawing because that's the main metaphor that i'm using so everything is sort of going back to drawing or it's about how we see so it really i mean i had this experience where i would give it to people you know i'd print little minis of it and Somebody would say, oh, yeah, it's about it's about how we do research or, yeah, oh, yeah, it's about perception. And I love that. I love that sort of, you know, it, it makes me think about like a hologram, depending on what your angle you're kind of looking at it. It's this different thing. So I really like making things that are as much about the other thing as they are about the thing I might have been thinking about. And it, maybe it gets me in trouble. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's very possible that that does like somebody's reading it and like, they totally think it's about something I never thought of, which happens a lot, it happens a lot that people will say, Oh, this, you know, I had a comics, a very early, early, uh, like blog review of unflattening that it, from a comics guy. And it, it was all about, it, it was as if the book was all about comics every page, like all my discussion of boxes at the beginning was all sort of meta commentary on the panels in comics. Mm -hmm. It was really interesting. I mean, I I don't think it's true at all, but it was really interesting. But I, but I think, and I've also had the experience where if you, people who read the, the notes at the end, which, which don't really explain a lot, but they do tell sort of 
backstory on what I was thinking about in some cases. Mm -hmm. I've had people who've read the book and then read those and found that the book was like a completely different experience from that other time because they were sort of clued into certain references that they weren't. So so I don't know. And I, I kind of like, I mean, I don't know. I think about this as maybe a kid who grew up reading superhero comics and like, you know, stuff happened 50 issues ago that I didn't read, but they reference, right? Um, mm -hmm you know, you're not going to know everything in everything you read. And so it either triggers you to say, oh, what is he talking about here with the tornado and the, the wardrobe and whatever else? Or they keep moving and it's okay. Um, I think I'm okay with either. Yeah. Well, I guess just to push that a little bit more in a sure. philosophical way, do you think that there is a sort of truth then in what you're doing? Like if if someone were to interpret it, they could either be right or wrong, or do you think that there is no even whatever you were intending is not necessarily the right answer if someone were to get that exactly in their interpretation? It wouldn't necessarily be the truth of the panel, for example. I mean, one would say that's true of all writing, right? But um, yeah, I mean, I guess it depends how postmodern you are, yeah, how much yeah. you ascribe to that, right? And I don't know. I mean, I it's funny when I give talks about the work. I feel like I'm, you know, like, like the, it's to me, it's clearly about schools and education and that kind of thing. Like, that's definitely a big, but there's people who have no idea that's what I'm talking about. They see like the, the sort of boxes that people are in and the, the, they, they see it as like applying to something very different than I thought about, which I think is, which is good, which is sort of the plus of it is like, instead of being turned off by words, like, like if you, if you have a conversation with somebody say, you know, something about schools, people have like very strong opinions. You're like, oh, those teachers, they're whatever. You know, they have very strong feelings. Whereas in this way, because I haven't identified any of it, there's a good chance that they will read it. And they'll, I mean, maybe, maybe it'd be too esoteric or something, but, but if they do read it, they won't be pushed out by anything that they already have a very strong opinion about. And they might be able to relate to their own lives in what they're reading. And then sort of, I think come to the same kind of feeling that somebody else who knows all the illusions, what they're going to, but not from the same perspective, but still sort of get that same gestalt of the work. And that may be it, or that may then trigger them to want to go back and, and read it again and look up things and, um, and sort of have that sort of mystery with it, which I like. I don't know. I just, some, some college kid in, in, in India just sent me a letter about, uh, I did a comic for MLA, which is very sort of a semi-continuation of this and sort of a bridge to my next work. And he had like a bunch of theories about what some of the stuff I, I did in his four pages was. And I was like, I hadn't thought of like half of the things he said, and they were all pretty cool. So I like that. And I like when people tell me what they think unflattening means, and it's not what I thought about at all. I mean, like I said, it can get you in trouble. I'm sure there's there's people who can take it to mean that, you know, things that I probably would strongly disagree with. But I haven't seen that a lot. So, I mean, that's really interesting that you say that because that's almost exactly what I say to some of the students I do a media literacy class, intro to media literacy class with, where we look at Chris Claremont's um, God Loves, Man Kills. Have you seen that one, the X-Men one? You know, I, I mean, I know it, but I don't know that yeah. I've ever read it. I know what it is, though. Uh -huh. Yeah, well, I mean, the, the just the general basic nature of it is clearly referring to sort of racist narratives because they uh, they hang these mutants early on and they they call them muties and they put a sign on them. Right. And so, you know, we talk about that, we unpack it. It's not very hard to see the connections to uh, early racism in the civil rights movement 
as well as other things that could be sort of metaphorically there. But I tell them that if you are coming at this from, let's, I don't know, a Civil War uh, patriot or something or a um, uh, black nationalist or a uh, racist or whatever it is that you're coming from, you're going to have very specific opinions if you read a history, for example, of, of the South in America. But if you come at it looking at mutants and X-Men, not very many people have super strong opinions about the validity of uh, X-Men, you know, as real people. So they're not as likely to to have it sort of pre-digested, and they're more likely to think about it as a story and then apply it to what they're seeing, which mm -hmm. I think, yeah, as you say, is like a really cool aspect of comics. Right. Does that mean, though, that to some extent it's less rigorous as a dissertation? Because, I mean, uh, in talking to people about this, I remember early, like I said, when, when this had come out as a book that you could buy, a lot of us um, picked it up and we're talking about it and talking about our own experiences doing dissertations. Do you think, and again, I'm not saying this is me, but do you think <laughs> that you, you got off easy doing this? <laughs> well, okay, first of all, easy. Not to, yeah, not to say that, yeah, not to say I can't imagine how much work went into even just the drawings, let alone the thought behind it and all that stuff. So again, me playing devil's advocate, <laughs> no, I, I think, understood. I understood. Uh, yeah, like compared to, let's say, a dissertation that somebody has written, I don't know how many words it would be, I can't even remember, but, uh, you know, around 300 pages or something. Sure. Well, I mean, just to address the, the obvious thing, it definitely doesn't shorten your time to, uh, to make drawings that go with your entire dissertation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, any, anyone who wants to say it's easier is out of their mind. <laughs> I mean, I get this question a lot. People are interested in doing dissertations in, in comics or alternative formats. And, you know, if you're a dabbler, that's a bad idea because it's brutal. And if you're on a deadline, like you've got to graduate at a certain time, it's a bad idea. Um, if it's the most important thing to you and you got to do it, then you got to do it. It's definitely not a time-saving thing. The other thing is, I, I mean, I think I, I sort of get that and I get the questions about assessment because these are things I do with my students as well. I mean, I have them make not dissertations, but this sort of this sort of work. I think because we're so used to what thinking looks like, you know, I mean, like it has a very particular form, 12 point font and doubles, you know, that mm -hmm. that we're it's hard to look at pictures without saying, oh, that's just a picture and not think about all the kinds of connections that are being made in the picture and all the kinds of thought that went behind uh, the juxtapositions of like how precise this move is next to, you know, this mark is next to this thing to make you make a certain connection to make the reader experience it in a certain way. I mean, that's true artistically always, but I think it's also equally true in sort of making an argument through images. So, you know, the amount of research I do that went into this is, is probably more than I would have done for a straight text because for a few reasons. I mean, one, you know, you look at my references, they are the same kind of things that I would have done in a text dissertation. So that, that doesn't really change at all. But mm -hmm. I'm also at the same time, because there's this whole other level, like it references this whole history of images. And um, so there's that, that level of it too. And then I think the most important thing, and I think this is what really occurred to me in the midst of doing it. It's not really what I went into doing it. I think my idea of doing scholarship in comics was that I could bring access and I could bring access by not making idiots guide to philosophy, but actually something as deep, if not deeper in its sort of density, but still, but still accessible. Mm -hmm. But I think what came out of it for me is that it's actually different. Like the kind of thinking that I'm able to do is quite different than what I could do 
if I was only writing in text. And if, if I had written a text dissertation and added pictures to it after, it would be a dramatically different thing than the, than the piece that I made. And it's different because I'm using this, this other mode of thinking, which has different affordances, and it allowed me to think about things in different ways. And I think that's, that's kind of the argument of the book, but I think it's, it's more of the argument that I've been making since I've made the book, and it's like more of the argument of my teaching and my work going forward. It's no less legitimate, but it's, it's different, and I think we're not necessarily very well equipped to understand that. So I've taught a comics and education class while I was a student at Columbia, and I've taught several others, and now I'm, I'm running a comics program at San Francisco State. But like the second or third time I taught my class at Columbia, I'd always been having us do making exercises, even though the, the bulk of the class was to get students to find ways to use comics with their students. But I always wanted making. That was very, very important to me. This one time I taught it, we like the kind of books that we would look at to, to talk theory and, and stuff like that we're all late coming in. So I did all, I front loaded all the making exercises at the beginning. And like a couple of weeks in, the book still hadn't come. And I, I started to apologize to the students. I was like, you know, I'm really sorry we haven't learned. And, and I stopped and I'm like, wait a second. Hmm. And we'd been, we'd been learning so much. Like they've been making, you know, I, I do a sort of constraint based, very simple comics making exercise that they can sort of bring any skills they want into them. But but all of a sudden, they've like started thinking about state space and they're thinking about how to organize things and how many sequence, you know, how many images to use or whatever. There's all these kinds of enormous amount of decisions that go into to making a comic. And they've been doing it, all of it and um, and comparing with each other and sort of teaching themselves in this really powerful way. And I think it's hard to value that it doesn't have neat rubrics for it. Right. Well, especially in the system of education that, as it exists today. Right. It just doesn't. We're not built for it. And I, and I, I mean, I watched myself have that same experience. Like, you know, I get it. I get people saying it's, if it's any less rigorous than something else, it's not because of the form. I mean, someone can blame that on me. They can say, well, he just didn't. My text would have been no more. My level of, of scholarship would have been equal in, in mm -hmm. uh, a text only version. That's not about the form. Personally, I think the form has forced me to go in all kinds of directions that I just wouldn't expect to go. And it's forced me to study. I, I give this example all the time, the Scheherazade page mm -hmm. in the chapter on imagination. There's a little corner of it that's that's this sort of sidetrack into a Persian mathematician, astronomer in the Arab Golden Age, Al-Tusi. You know, I spent a couple of weeks studying studying his astronomical calculations because the drawings needed a solution. That was incredibly rigorous amount of me studying this stuff and I think presenting it. But there isn't, had I done a text sort of uh, thing, I wouldn't have gone there because it didn't, the text wouldn't have required it, but the drawings did. So I, I, I think it's just, it's very hard for us. I mean, it's hard for me, I think, having come through this to understand drawing as a kind of thinking rather than as a kind of decoration. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And that's actually, I wanted to ask you about uh, drawing that you do that I thought was interesting, not just because I'm a Batman fan and it's Bob Kane, <laughs> but because, um, so you, you have this image of this guy in an early, you know, Renaissance, uh, flying machine type thing. Right. But at the bottom left, it says, uh, a sort of citation, a visual citation. It says, after Da Vinci and Bob Kane, after Da Vinci. So Bob Kane doing Da Vinci. Right. But you clearly have seen something and you're referencing it in a, to, to a certain extent, the same way that somebody who has read, who had read an article would reference that article. 
but you're doing it visually. And I thought that was a really interesting thing that I haven't seen. I don't know if I've ever seen it, but the idea that uh, you're not just, you know, doing background research on who said this about a term or a concept and then giving them attribution. You're also doing that with your visuals in many cases. Can you say a little bit about that and uh, maybe if there was a similarity or difference in how you would research visuals? Yeah, that's really interesting too. I mean, and it's something I don't know that I've really figured out how I want to do it. When there's visual citations, I tend to cite them on the page, you know, like in gray text or something. Mm -hmm. When there's textual citations, those all ended up in the end notes. Not really sure why that was the way I went with it, but it is. It's not exactly your question, but that that's still something as I sort of figure out how I'm doing this work that I, I want to keep thinking about. Sorry, you want to know about visual citations, like the process of researching it. Yeah, like if you're going to, I mean, I basically know how to do a dissertation. I've done one, and uh, I don't know whether it was uh, the best or the worst of, of other dissertations. I mean, I haven't read that many dissertations from other people. <laughs> no, no one has. <laughs> well, yeah, they get they often get you know into a bookshelf in the sc- in the basement of the school or something, and maybe they're digitized, but uh, they're usually not what's presented to the public, even an academic public. But in researching it. Generally speaking, if you're doing a PhD, right, you have your your list of books that you have to read for the program, and then you have this whole other list of books that you have to read in relation to the subject that you're studying. And once you've done all that and you put it together, then you say like you basically prove like yes, I've read these canonical books, I've read this, and I know how to do this, and here are my citations. What does it look like when you're doing this in relation to visuals and visual rhetoric and and uh, things that don't come in in easily packaged uh, sort of citation rubrics like we're used to in academia. Yeah. I mean, on one hand, I don't know why it needs to look particularly different. You know, I mean, the fact that you're you're still making an argument, you're still like, Mm -hmm. there's still a setup, there's still examples, there's still some kind of bringing it to a close, right? I mean, that that hasn't changed, you know, and and mine is such an odd creation because of the way I approached it, you know, I mean, I didn't do it's a literary research or a philosophical one. It's not, it's not a, you know, I wasn't in the field. I wasn't, I wasn't doing that kind of study. So some of that's not going to be there. I don't know. I guess I don't know why it needs to look that different. Obviously, if you do the kind of work I do that draws on a lot of other references visually, then you're going to do that. If I had done a dissertation that you know, was maybe more narrative, like a character or, or something, uh, maybe I wouldn't have, you know, I wouldn't be putting Mona Lisa in there or Da Vinci's, uh, Da Vinci's flying man that Batman was referenced. I, I, I don't, on one hand, I don't see why it's all that different. Like you got to do, you do a lot of research. That's, that's the nature of making these kinds of things. And, but on the other hand, I'm really concerned my dad is a physics teacher. My mom is a naturalist, um, environmental studies teacher. So I reference a lot of things in science and I reference a lot of things in sort of environment or, or nor nature. And it's really important to me that if I draw a butterfly or, or the spider, that's the chapter two, that it's not just a spider like, oh, we get it. There's an icon of a spider like that. It's a particular spider. So like in chapter two, the, the, the title page, um, the importance of seeing double and then some the spider is a spider that has lots of eyes. I mean, which lots of them do, but a very particular kind of way I wanted to see, but also one that spins webs because he's on a web. So there's lots of spiders that have really cool looking eyes, but they're not web spinners. So like they're out. Hmm. Um, I couldn't do those things. And I found, and this is as I'm working on the next one, this has really prompted some very strange discoveries. 
that if I try to stay true to both the kind of sort of research side of it, but also the visual side of it and like get my, you know, like not take shortcuts on that, it almost always leads me in a very slow way yeah. <laughs> um, to more interesting, to like a better answer. It's, it's almost, you know, it, I'm not much of a mystic, but I feel like, like things sort of congeal in ways that I could never have predicted because I, I really, like I had all these constraints. Like I, I've got the constraint of, of being true to this kind of research and I've got the constraint of being true to this kind of image and this kind of whatever. I, I'm, I've got to follow it. I could go. I could give you one more example, but maybe I've already talked too much on this. Well, no, I think it's a it's a, just a really interesting thing that illustrates how difficult it can be to do work like this. Because if you're doing a you know traditional written dissertation, you're reading books and then you're citing those books, and that's generally all you have to worry about. I mean, obviously it varies by field, but what you've just said, right, is that you have to you have to do other research because I think anyone who might dismiss this as being um, easier or whatever would think that, oh, yeah, you just drew a spider or you just drew a guy flying. What is there to uh, be impressed about? But if you actually look into what you've done, you've uh, you've done the work for the spider, for the flying man, and for myriad other things. So in doing that background research, it can, it can be presumed by somebody who doesn't, I guess, really see the underlying work that goes into it that it would be easy because uh, because they're not drawing, right? So they're not worried about how to draw and what to draw and uh, realizing how, I guess, how strenuous or how, just how intensive that process can be. Yeah, intensive is really right. And, you know, and I'm a particularly obsessive kind of cartoonist. You know, I mean, they're all like heavily, they're very dense images and they don't have to be that. I don't, I'm not sure I recommend that to any other human. <laughs> um, I think because we don't know how to read images that well, you know, we're very fast at taking them in. We're so good at seeing them, but we're not necessarily good at slowing down and thinking about where they come from mm -hmm. or what, what the significance is. So, yeah, I mean, I understand what you're saying well, and I, I, I think these changes are coming. <laughs> you know, I mean, I think we're starting to see more appreciation for the kinds of just the other modes that people work and make meaning. We really need to keep opening spaces for that. On the flip side of that, as a reader... I'm wondering if you have any advice for people, because I know I deal with this with my students when I give them comics and they're not comics readers. They feel uncomfortable with the visuals and how to read them. Mm -hmm. But, you know, in a traditional, because of the way that things have been set up with our education system in particular, but also our general just uh, society, if I read something and it says a specific patent or a specific uh, model or something like that, I can effectively look that up. Earlier, I would look that up maybe at a library through card systems or something. Now I can just kind of Google it. And it's very easy to find to find references to that same thing in many different ways, right? But if you're if you're reading a comic and you're looking at the visuals, and I'm thinking again of this uh, uh, one of these early, uh, not early, but a few years ago, is this Batman comic where Bruce Wayne I think is training somebody, a protege, and there's this image that I realized having read uh, Frank Miller's earlier uh, Year One that it's totally mm -hmm. a reference to that. And I had that because I had read that earlier. Mm. But if I hadn't, I would have no idea that this is referencing something. And I would have no idea, even if I knew that this is clearly some kind of reference, I would have no idea how to reference it because it's like Batman 
training by kicking a tree over. Oh, uh, sure. And uh, so, you know, you, you might be able to Google Batman Bruce Wayne training by kicking a tree over, but right. it's very hard to find that reference as opposed to somebody saying like, you know, in Freud's, uh, Freud's theory of the unconscious in which he argues this, you can basically look <laughs> that up, right? And you can you right. can textually find that, but a visual is very hard to find. Do you have any idea, and I don't mean to put you on the spot, what would you recommend for somebody who, you know, reads a comic or any visual and, and thinks to themselves, this is some kind of reference, but I don't know how to begin? That's tough. Uh, I mean, I'm going to give you a silly example. Uh, so my, my daughter, who's four, and I uh, read My Little Pony comics a lot, mm-hmm. um, which are continuity heavy. Like there's, <laughs> there's a whole, I mean, which, which I really enjoy. But, um, but we got into it kind of late. So there's been tons of issues and there's a whole show, which we've, we've never seen the show. So there's, there's often references to things we don't know. And there's a zillion characters and the characters float through and, and there's the main characters and we know them, but there's also, you know, another 50,000 characters that sometimes do something and sometimes are just in the background. But I remember very recently we, we'd read one comic that had this character in it a whole bunch of times. And then we got an earlier comic and, She's like, that's, I forget who it is, who the character is myself, but she said, that's that character. That's the librarian that was in the other one. And sure enough, you know, this, this character had a one page appearance on this comic that there would been another one where she was in it like three or four pages. And that was like super rewarding because it changes how you read the one that you've already read a bunch of times. Mm -hmm. And it, I find like it, like it changed. I mean, in the same way you were talking about, you know, how, when people get the references in my comics, they're not like it it changes it. And I think that's really cool. And I'll give you one other silly example, but, um, do you know the kids books, uh, Rosie Revere engineer and Iggy Peck architect and Ada twist scientist. They sound lovely, but no, I'm I'm afraid I don't know them. Well, they're fantastic. But, um, we, uh, Iggy Peck is the first one and we got Rosie Revere, which is the second one. And they, they're all very separate books, but they're all in the same second grade classroom. Hmm. And so there's a few pages where you see the whole class and the rest of it's just the kid doing the kid's thing. So you can read them totally independently. But so we read Rosie Revere, the second book. And then later we got Iggy Peck, which is the first book. And then so we're reading and we're like, well, there's Rosie. And she's just like, I don't know if they planned to have a second book when they did it or not. I have no idea. But she's there and she's like, you realize looking at, at least I, I think about it now, that she has a whole backstory that otherwise she's just one of the 17 kids. Now I've read Rosie's story, cause, which comes after, and like it changes how you read that book. And I don't think that helps your question, like how do you go track all these things down? Well, cr- chronology, I guess, is, is one way to do it. But I get, I, that can be very intimidating for something like Batman or Superman that's been around for almost 100 years. Yeah, but you know, I mean, what's what's crazy to me, I mean, and now we're getting into sort of a geekdom conversation. <laughs> like, you know, I grew up reading these comics in the 70s and, and, and 80s, and we didn't have wikis about the comics. Uh, they weren't trade, you know, you couldn't buy like a bunch of back issues all bound up. There weren't message boards like that you could ask these kinds of questions about. You just, you know, maybe you found some back issues in a quarter bin or something. And you just had to like follow along and, and trust that there was enough clues to catch on. Now they tend to think that their audience doesn't want to know that whole history. So they restarted on all those kinds of things. But I think that ends up being more confusing because you're sort of semi, you're, you're making winks and nods at, at old readers, but you don't really know which, you no longer know what counts. (laughs) 
and the new readers don't get any of your winks and nods at all. And there's no way it's kind of fun to have all that history. And, and, and just like my daughter recognizing that my little pony character, like you get it when you get it, you know, if, if somebody never knows about the lion, the witch and the wardrobe, but yet they understand that going through a ward, you know, going through a, a, a closet scene, like has mystery to it or whatever, that's okay. And if five years from now, they like, they happen to pick up a copy of, of the Narnia books and they're like, oh, all of a sudden it like changes how you're reading it. And that's kind of this kind of neat shift. You know, it's hard to imagine for people who have gone through a dissertation and have, uh, you know, been in the world of academia for a long time. But I remember still entering to a, to a certain extent, you know, from I was in journalism school, where you don't really read that much theory or criticism at a highly theoretical level. And so for me, it was really intimidating to hear all these names thrown at you, right? Like Foucault, Deleuze, uh, Bourdieu, all these just, especially the French theorists who, uh, you know, have their own world almost that you have to enter and in order to understand anything. So you're reading one thing, but you realize you need to read about 50 things before that right, so right. that you can have any kind of conversation. But once you get so in, wrapped up in that world, I think it's easy just to be like, oh, yeah, Bourdieu and his concept of uh, cultural capital is clearly referenced here when this guy says this or whatever. I think that same thing happens, but it's just expected. And I guess people know how to handle that in academia today. Right. Uh, whatever discipline you're in, there are these, uh, it's basically this big world that at some point people had to enter but that's sort of the price you pay is having to go back and f see how these things fit together i think that's also why the people who aren't into comics avoid them yeah and the people who aren't into academics avoid them right exactly because <laughs> you, you throw out these ideas or whatever and people who get it they get most of or some of at least the winks and nods and everyone else is just like what the hell is going on here yeah. But there is this whole system through in academia that people understand how to work whereas, you know, how do you how do you figure out what the, where the winks and nods are let alone how to track them down in a visual medium? Right. I don't know, Google it, reverse image search. Um <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. It's a really it's a great question, but I think if the work intrigues you enough to want to learn more, you will. And if it if you're okay not, then you know, uh, you won't. And I don't, I don't know. I mean, I think the work should be able to stand as its own. Like you shouldn't have to know all those things. And I think that's true of somebody referencing Foucault, like they should reference it well enough so that somebody else doesn't have to have read it. Right. Mm -hmm. I just don't see it as all that different. I, I think you're, you're, you're putting those two worlds together is really a beautiful articulation. I think that's uh you're always entering some kind of world that you don't necessarily know about and you can't start at zero. You start somewhere and then you make your way forward. But at the same time, if you're really into it, you start making your way backward. Yeah. I guess we are generally lucky to be able to have messaging boards and stuff like that, where even if no one in your vicinity is reading these comics or reading these, uh, uh, you know, dense theoretical texts, you can at least kind of look up a lot of these things, even if you have to go through a few mediations before you get to the original image or something that might be referred to. So, I mean, I think clearly there are, are so many things you could talk about in relation to literacy and visual literacy and multimodal literacy. But that makes me want to ask you about what you're working on now. Where 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 are you going since uh, having done Unflattening? Yeah, I mean, I've had a couple couple pieces in the interim. I did a comic on climate change for nature and this, this thing that just picked up the Eisner on uh, the Columbia's comic book librarian and a couple other short things. But um, 
I, I have a, I don't, I don't know that we say sequels in academic books, um, even if they're comic books, hmm. but I have a follow-up to it that I think pushes, you know, I, I think pushes a lot on the lessons that I learned and, and things that I talk about when I talk about the work, but not things that aren't necessarily in it. I guess I'd say if, if unflattening was, was more of a, it was a political statement, like this stuff should count. Mm-hmm. This one I'm working on now is is much more an actionable, in my view, um, to really talk about the connection between thinking and drawing and, and really beyond drawing movement and really talk about how integral they are to thinking. That's yeah, I could say a lot about it, but I don't I'm sort of rambling on it right now. No, I mean, it sounds like an interesting work that that I can see the connections, even though I'm just you know hearing about the, the very general idea. Did you have to change anything in the way? Th- if you started to think about movement and the body, did you have to think about it differently than visualization and this uh, sort of uh, rendering of images? Yeah, I haven't drawn those parts yet. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Um, I probably, probably, I don't know. I don't know the answer to that one. I think much in the way that I think unflattening is an argument for comics, but it's really not. I mean, that's a tiny, tiny part of it. It's really an argument for any kind of sort of alternative form that this will probably use drawing as its metaphor to talk about ways you can think other, you know, way, other ways you can do things. I, you know, you asked the question about rigor and research, and I, I think I've read more for this one than the first one, which is really fun. I mean, everything, a lot about sort of where we've come from and what, you know, all the stuff about thinking. So it's forced me to educate myself on, on a ton of fields that, I'm intrigued by, but I don't, you know, I I don't know. And that's at the same time, I mean, I think this comes back to some of your earlier questions is that while I'm thinking about it, I'm also thinking about how do we, how do I represent this in images? And some of it's much easier to talk about, much easier to just to, to sort of summarize it in words rather than find images. Well, let me say, let me clarify one. I'm really interested in how you can use the images and the whole structure of the page to embody the kinds of things you're talking about rather than illustrate. And I, I, that might be a subtle distinction. I mean, to me, it's not. It's a simple thing to say, you know, write your sort of text and add images that sort of accompany it in an illustrational way. Mm-hmm. But I think finding ways that the reader sort of experiences the kinds of moves that your argument is making is a very different thing. I did a comic for the Boston Globe on entropy. It's on entropy, but it's, you know, everything runs downhill, but it's on these sort of moments when things run against the stream, which like life, the things like moments of order, even as everything is sort of falling apart. Mm-hmm. And I spent months, it's a one page, it's like a full back page of the you know, one of their sections, trying to figure out how the flow of the page could mirror the flow of my discussion. And it's this sort of crazy thing where the page itself spirals and it, it asks you to read. At some point you're reading normally because you're talking about things falling apart. And then at another part, you are forced to read or suggested to read. Um, it's very clear which way you're supposed to read, but to go right to left and then bottom to top before coming back out of the spiral and reading in a more straightforward fashion. And for me, I mean, we, you know, we talk a lot about comics as like images and text, but you can talk about how it changes how you read. Mm-hmm. It isn't left to right, left to right, like carriage returns of a typewriter. It's, it's got all these other possibilities and other ways you can sort of start to play with that that are really exciting. And that is as important to how you're making your argument or your discussion 
as the kind of renderings you're doing within it. Definitely. And I well, I wanted to ask you really one or two more questions. Sure. At the end of unflattening, I, like I'm talking about the back of the book type thing, you have an idea map that goes on for a few pages of what I assume is your, your sort of draft or you're thinking about what to do and how to represent these things. Is that the first step in your work or are you, or do you generally, do you write notes? Like, uh, do you write words? Do you write, uh, some kind of smaller image? Because this thing looks like it could be on like, uh, butcher paper or whatever that, go, that extends for, yeah. I don't know, 10 feet or something. Oh, it's not that big. <laughs> it's not that big. It's newsprint. I've got, uh, I'm into my second one for the next book. It's super cheap newsprint that fades as I'm working on it, which is partly <laughs> intentional because I want, to not let it be precious at all and it's large two by three feet maybe something like that. it's not as it's not as big as okay as so, so it's not a roll it's not a roll you tape it together or something or what it's just pull off sheets um, okay okay two by three you know typical newsprint thing that you would get but to answer the question question that's where the book starts and grows it's really i've said it i said it earlier that it's really important to say it's it, it wasn't, there's not a script that then I find images for. Mm-hmm. It grows out of making these drawings. And the reason, I wouldn't mind working larger. I mean, mostly that's, I just would need something to like tack paper to, which I don't really have in, in my workspace. The large paper allows you to see all kinds of connections that I wouldn't be able to see. So I make sketches and, you know, it's sketches and words. And it's not, it's not like there's no words in it. There's plenty of words. Mm-hmm. I guess the way I see it is like, that's not a picture of my thinking that that's it. Like my work doesn't exist without making these kind of sketches. And it's not like I can't put words together and then figure out some pictures, but it's a very different thing. And I think mine tends to thrive when I let that, that feedback process between marks I've made on that paper and my eyes um, start to see things that I didn't expect. Uh, it happens a lot. I, mean, I can't think, I can think of stuff in the new work where I tweeted something about this, where I, I said, I'm really good at drawing badly and drawing badly allows me to see lots of things. When you redraw something sort of quickly and, and rough, you start to see new things in it that you didn't anticipate or didn't mean. That happens to me all the time. And the sort of the hasty, lousy sketches are really helpful at, at generating ideas. Oh, all right, well, now I got to go answer this question that I hadn't thought about before. And then back to the drawing board, so to speak. Um, so it sort of, it feeds that process. Yeah, I mean, that's really interesting. I'm thinking about McLuhan and the idea of literary man being very sort of goal-oriented and following this line or this tree, right? Whereas, you know, tribal men or, or other kinds of societies don't necessarily think like that, what you're describing, to me at least, sounds a lot more appropriate for the contemporary age, especially when you think about websites and when you think about all these sort of like rhizomatic connections that people are not as linear as they used to be, and yet traditional dissertations and all these kinds of works still kind of push you towards thinking in a linear way, at least if you follow the way, kind of like, I guess, your your description of these people who are one-dimensional and, f- and fitting in these lines, this allows you to think in a different way, which obviously fits really well into education. I'm glad you're doing work in education. Could you describe, like, when your pencil hits that paper, what you're doing, if it's not coming from an idea that's even at least somewhat formed in your head before you're drawing? Like, what? how do you know what to draw if you haven't thought of an idea first? Or have you thought of it, but it's just really amorphous, or what? 
You know, I mean, I think, and that's partly what I'm sort of wrestling with for the for the beginning of this new project is like, where does that come from? That's a big part of what I'm wrestling with. I guess for me, I, there's always like an inkling, you know, there's like a question I'm curious about. And from that question, then there's notes and the notes might be text and the notes might be drawings and there might be arrows, which I think is a really uh, important thing, arrow, you know, that, that, that connect things and that direct flow and those things start to go and then they then you're interacting with that sort of soup of stuff and it says oh well how about this and then you know that might send you to do a lot of reading it might send you to make a lot more pictures it might say oh well i drew thing i'm working on i drew this axe and the way i drew this double-headed axe actually turns out it looks a lot like like light coming out from a lighthouse like the two beams sort of coming i'm like oh well that's cool because i want to you know like all of a sudden, so now I'm like, well, part of the narrative maybe has to include that lighthouse, which I wasn't anticipating, but that makes a lot of sense because that's actually tying into something else. Does it start in the hand? Does it start in the head? Does it? I think the answer is yes to so much of that. Um, it starts in both. And for me, if I if I don't do the moving around, I think the work isn't going to be as interesting, or it's definitely going to be different. I, I you know maybe I shouldn't even try to judge it. But it's going to be very different. I mean, it's really interesting to hear about this process that went into it. And um, I mean, I know I've taken up a lot of your time, so I appreciate you having this conversation with me. And I really look forward to uh, to seeing what you do next. Uh, me too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I guess once you once you figure that out, maybe you can let the rest of us know. And uh, and I'm sure I'm not the only one looking forward to seeing what you do. Thanks. Thanks. This was fantastic. So much to think about. I really appreciate it. Thank you, the listener, for helping support this podcast. If you haven't already, I really appreciate it when you leave reviews on iTunes or any of the social media or tell your friends who may be interested in this to check it out. I couldn't do it without all of the support from people either sending me feedback, sending me ideas, or of course the interviewees who are giving their time and talking about their brilliant work. We have a lot of great interviews coming up in the future, so stay tuned.